So today's topic is about the Pilgrim's Progress and about the Reformation in England. Now, how many of you have read or heard of the Pilgrim's Progress before? Okay, a few of you. Um, Pilgrim's Progress is a Christian allegory written by John Bunyan in 1678. And this book has been translated into more than 200 languages and has never been out of print since 1678. That's pretty impressive. And so you'll, you'll be able to find multiple versions of the Pilgrim's Progress. They have children's versions of the Pilgrim's Progress. They have many, many different uh, print publications of the Pilgrim's Progress. Now, what is this story about? Well, it starts out like this. He writes, As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where there was a den, and I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. I looked and I saw him open the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled, and not being able longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do to be saved? And then the story goes on to talk about how this man named Christian goes on this journey. Basically, um, he lives in the city of destruction, and an evangelist comes along and says, because um, he's asking that question, what shall I do to be saved? And the evangelist says, you have to get out of the city of destruction and head towards the celestial city. And he's like, well, how do I get there? And the evangelist says, do you see that light? And he's like, oh, I kind of see it. It's kind of far away. And he's like, you head towards that light. And... Um, the story is an allegory, so this man, Christian, after meeting evangelists, goes through quite a journey. For example, he, he encounters pretty early on the slough of despair, where the uh, miriness of his guilt and his shame and his fears and his doubts are about to drown him out. But then help comes along and rescues him. He has to go through the... Um, the village of morality where worldly uh, wise man and Mr. Degality and civility try to persuade him that if you just live a good life with good morals and good values, you can make it. And uh, he realizes that it's actually a trap um, and that there's only one way to get rid of that burden on his back. And there's only really one way to, to make it to that celestial city. Um, he goes through the hill of difficulty, the valley of humiliation, um, something very difficult here. As you can see, it's a very long journey. And he finally um, gets to a place called the place of deliverance where there is the cross of Jesus Christ. And as he looks upon that cross, the burden that was on his back just tumbles off and rolls into the empty grave that is underneath the cross. And Christian is able to get rid of that burden that he had been um, just, you know, weary under for such a long time. But that is not the end of his journey. That's actually only in the middle. And um, he has to continue on. Um, he has to face the, you know, city of Vanity Fair where there's lots of temptations. Um, he has to go through um, the Doubting Castle. But he also has good moments too, like the Pleasant Meadow um, and there's a palace beautiful until he finally reaches celestial city. This story of Pilgrim's Progress um, was actually popular immediately in his in John Bunyan's days, but over time. And I think this story is actually a great representation of the ethos of the Protestant Reformation in England. For example, it really highlighted the importance of the Bible. Christian in the story you know, opens that Bible, that book, and by reading that book, he gains that need 
that that feeling of burden that he actually um, has this sin problem that he needs to get rid of. Um, and throughout his whole journey, the Bible plays a pivotal role in guiding him, giving him direction, giving him promises. For example, when he's going through the valley of the shadow of the death, um, Psalm 23 is uh, recited for him about how God is going to be with him even through the valley of the shadow of death, that he doesn't have to fear evil because God is with him. And so um, the Bible is, is, is a very pivotal um, uh, feature of the story as well as, as with the Protestant Reformation. Also, this story really highlighted that the solution to our sin problem and, uh, and really the um, epitome and the centrality of our Christian faith is the cross. And that's what the story really highlights, that burden just tumbling off when he gets to the cross. And that was the main message of the Protestant Reformation that was so different from uh, the Christian message of the days before. Um, the message was not about what we must do. It wasn't about what we have done wrong or even about, um, you know, um, keeping the commandments. But it really was about how Jesus Christ on the cross paid for our sins. So that's the second part of the story that really reflects the ethos of the Protestant Reformation. The third part, the part that um, really portrays the Protestant Reformation is the emphasis on the journey. The emphasis that the Christian experience is not something that you just know and is not something that you can buy. It's something that you have to experience and that it's a lifetime journey and not something that you just do once. Um, and that that journey involves not just getting to a destination, but becoming somebody who is like God, becoming someone who can trust God, becoming someone who can have the faith and endurance to make that journey. And so those are some of the important um, elements of the story that really kind of reflected what the main concerns of the Protestant Reformation was about. It's also representative of the times that the author John Bunyan uh, was living in. The Protestant Reformation, which we've been tracing for several weeks now, came to England not only through the writings of individuals like Martin Luther and John Calvin, whom we have talked about, but also through politics. Some of you might recognize, here's another map, by the way, of Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you might recognize this man, King Henry VIII. Um, he is chiefly responsible for bringing the Protestant Reformation to England, but not theologically per se. Um, Henry VIII wanted to get a divorce from his wife, Catherine. And according to the church, divorce was forbidden. And so after much tension and struggle uh, between him and the Pope, he finally declared himself in 1534 the supreme head of the Church of England, therefore liberating himself from the authority of the Pope and making that decision, I'm not going to get a divorce, uh, which he did, and he married um, Anne Boleyn. Uh, he consequently went on to have four other wives, but that's a different story for a different time. Um, at first, that break with uh, the Roman Catholic Church was at first not really theological. At first, it was just ecclesiastical, meaning church structure, church hierarchy, church authority. But over time, that first act of separation led itself, lent itself to um, each successive king and queen um, and parliament, therefore, depending on where they were, switching and kind of changing the favor of religious tolerance from time to time. For example, after um, Henry VIII eventually passed on, his son, uh, Edward VI, became king. 
Now, as you can see, he was only nine years old. And so he actually had a regent kind of rule in his place. Um, eventually, the Duke of Northumberland, um, who had Protestant sympathies, was able to influence this young king to institute some changes that actually made theological differences between the, the, uh, the English church or the Anglican church and the uh, Roman Catholic church. One of those was that in 1549, um, uh, priests were allowed to marry, and that was a very big difference. Also, the Act of Uniformity in 1549 provided the use of the Book of Common Prayer. So if you've ever um, heard about the prayer book, um, this was something that the, the Anglican Church um, published. And everybody, all the churches in England would have a copy of this common book. And it was in English, so unlike the Roman Catholic Church service, which was in Latin, they um, had their service in English. Um, also, the book really emphasized the reading of the Bible as well as the participation of the congregation in worship. Now, Edward VI was a sickly boy. Uh, he died pretty young. So then his sister, Queen Mary, uh, came to the throne. Now, Mary was the daughter of Catherine, who was the first wife of Henry VIII. And of course, she didn't like Protestantism because um, that denied her mother. It, basically, her mother became divorced because of that. And so she brought back Roman Catholicism with a vengeance. Um, she, when she came into that, that position of being the supreme ruler of the Church of England, she went on to say, I want to revert everything back to the way things were um, when my father, before my father divorced my mom, basically. And 800 English clergy who refused to revert back were forced to flee, and about 300 were killed for their faith. Ironically, their martyrdom had the opposite effect of what Mary was hoping for, because as people saw these faithful people willing to risk their lives and die, um, rather than to go back to the way things were, um, inspired them. And they actually, then the people swung back to Protestantism, uh, which was just in time for Elizabeth, who was next to rule. Elizabeth was the daughter of Anne Boleyn, who was the woman that King Henry VIII married after divorcing Catherine. So, of course, Anne is going to be more leaning towards Protestantism, which would legitimize her mother's marriage. Um, but Elizabeth, at the age of 25, when she became queen, um, wanted to take a more moderate stance between the Roman Catholic Church and um, what was previously being um, created. So then she um, proclamated her own Act of Supremacy in 1559, which made the queen the only supreme governor of this realm in spiritual, ecclesiastical, as well as temporal matters. And so she kind of actually took a little bit more control. So, you know, they talk about Mary and Bloody Mary and how she killed people. But actually, Elizabeth also fearlessly persecuted a lot of people who disagree with her. Even though her way was the middle way, anyone in the extremes was then kicked out or persecuted. Um, so even though England became known during Elizabeth's era as the champion of Protestantism, it was not yet the champion of religious liberty. Puritans, who wanted to purify the Anglican Church of remaining ties with the Roman Catholic Church, were kicked out um, or persecuted, imprisoned. Um, and as you know in history, many of them migrated to America and founded the U.S., um, with their religious desire for religious liberty. It's very interesting when reading the history books, um, these nonconformists or separatists or Puritans, they have many names, um, 
because they had to meet in secret, um, they describe how they would have to have trap doors to like drop the, the preacher down so that just, just in time, you know, the preacher would appear out of a trap door to preach, um, which I thought was really cool. I was like, wow, how do I make a dramatic entrance to illustrate this point? I thought about doing it, but. Um, or they would, because they're trying to meet in secret, they would meet in the middle of the night, so midnight, when it's, you know, no one would know that they're sneaking out. And because they had to be real quiet, they couldn't sing. Um, and so they made a lot of interesting, um, very fascinating um, you know, com- uh, accommodations to try to meet, even though they were being persecuted. Some of them um, did leave because they couldn't handle it anymore, but many of them continued to worship in secret and waited for the time when the next king or the next ruler would allow them to worship in peace. During this time, John Bunyan was born. He was born um, on November 30, 1628. And um, he describes in his own autobiography that in his youth, he says he was the ringleader of vice and ungodliness. And you can fill in in your own imagination what that might have looked like. And so he was not interested in church. He was not interested in God until he got married. And good for him. He married a very pious Christian woman. And he writes that she brought nothing materialistically into the marriage except two books. They didn't have a spoon or anything between the two of them, but she brought two books that her father had given her. And these two books were Puritan books um, about the life of the Christian. And um, when John Bunyan read these books, that burden began to grow. That burden began to gnaw in his heart that he needed to change his life, that he needed to give his life to Jesus. But it wasn't something that he decided to do overnight. Um, It took years for John Bunyan to let go of that desire to follow the world and to live in his comfort zone and to be like everybody else, Um, which at the time, being like everybody else meant you just go to the Church of England, right? And if you don't go, there was a fine you had to pay. Can you imagine? Uh, We wouldn't have all these empty seats today. (laughs) They had to pay quite a bit every week that they missed. Um, So they went. They probably slept while they were there, but they went. Um, and that he would have been happy to do that, except for this gnawing and this burden that was growing. The more he read the Bible, the more he read actually the writings of Martin Luther, the more he uh, was exposed to, there was a church nearby in Bedford that was a, a non-conforming church. Um, and the more he interacted with them and had Bible studies with the women there and, and, and heard the, the sermons, the more that gnawing grew. And he writes in his autobiography, One morning as I did lie in bed, he wrote, I was, as at other times, most fiercely assaulted with this temptation to sell and part with Christ. The wicked suggestion still running in my mind, sell him, sell him, sell him, sell him, as fast as a man could speak. I mean, you know, when we we talk about reformers, we just look, wow, they were amazing people. They had such faith. But they didn't get there overnight. They had to struggle just like we do with wanting to just give up on this walk that is so different, on this walk that is so difficult. Um, on this journey that is so long. But despite that temptation and, 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 and struggling through that, he finally came to the place where not only was he at peace with God, but he became on fire for him. He became on fire for him. He began to preach. And by the way, he was a tinker by trade, a tinker. But he began to preach as, as a lay person. And this is what he says. He says that he um, went myself in chains to preach to them in chains and carry that fire in my own conscience that I persuaded them to be aware of. 
so many people were so fascinated by this tinker who preached that within one day's notice, 1,200 people would come to hear him preach at 7 o'clock in the morning during the weekday. 1,200 people in 24 hours notice. No Facebook, no. They were just word of mouth, and 1,200 people would come. And when they asked John Owen, who was a Puritan theologian, when they asked him, why do you go to listen to this uneducated man preach? He said, I would willingly exchange all my learning for the tinker's power of touching people's hearts. And there was something about the way he preached, because it was preached from conviction, because there was something he struggled with. This was something that he knew without a, a moment's doubt that the only way to salvation was through Jesus Christ. He had that fire that he couldn't hold back. Um, and he was like another reformer who is, who is known to have said, they come to see me burn. They come to see me burn. And so he preached. Now, unfortunately for him, um, you know, three years into his, his preaching, uh, you know, lay ministry, his wife died, leaving him four children, one who was blind. The oldest, uh, Mary, was blind. A year later, he married a young woman named Elizabeth Bunyan, who is one of my heroes. I could go on about her, but I won't. Um, a year later, in 1660, King Charles II came to the throne. Um, and that changed once again the religious climate. So you can really tell that the Anglican uh, Church and the English uh, Reformation, it just swung back and forth depending on who was king, who was queen, who was Lord Protector, who was, you know, the king at once, the parliament banished the king, and then they brought him back, or they beheaded the first one and brought back the son. Anyways, there was a lot of change, and when King Charles II came back, um, the state forbade anyone from preaching without a license. And John Bunyan was arrested for preaching without that license. Sorry, it just, can you imagine not having that freedom to preach, of not having that, that freedom to share something that you're so passionate about? And, um, you know, we're not persecuted today um, for sharing our faith, but I'm a little emotional today because um, sometimes... People get really finicky about who can share God's word. And I read this quote, I uh, forget who, who said it, but they said, the world is starving for bread, and we argue about who has the right to serve it. And that was the situation here. Here was a man who was wanting to share the bread of life with the world, and they were saying, you don't have the license to share it. So he was in prison. And while I was in prison, they said, in order to get out, you just need to say seven words. I will never again preach in England. That's all you need to say. Seven words and we'll let you out. And, you know, when he was in prison, you know, away from his family, his, his bride, he, you know, he, he had just married her a year ago. They're still in their honeymoon phase. And actually, when, the, when they came to arrest him, she was pregnant and she miscarried because of the shock. Um, so there she is. You know, she's like 19, 20 years old lost her baby, now she has four stepchildren to take care of. She, doesn't, she can't work back then, you know. She's, she has to depend on the mercy of, of the community, the church community, to feed herself and the, and the kids and her husband. Back then in prison, they don't give you food. She had to bring food to her husband. Um, Twelve years. Twelve years he was in prison because he refused to say the words, I will never again preach in England. And the reason why I love Elizabeth Bunyan and John Bunyan is that there's a little exchange I heard about when I was a little girl about how she would go to the authorities and, and plead for justice for her husband. And they would say, you know, he's preaching heresy. And she would say, he's preaching the word of God. 
And they would say, well, he's just a tinker. And she would say, but he has authority from God. And she just stood up for her husband. And when John himself was tempted and said, I feel so bad that I'm in here. You're out there taking care of the kids. Maybe I should just give up. And she would say, never. You must never say those words. You must, don't worry about us. You, you stay true to your conscience. So for 12 years, John Bunyan stayed in prison. But while he was in prison, he wrote the Pilgrim's Progress that we have today that has inspired so many people. Finally, in 1672, the Declaration of Religious Indulgence resulted in his freedom, which allowed him to have the license to preach, and uh, he became the official pastor of the Nonconformist Church in Bedford. I wish I could say he then lived a wonderful life, but later when politics changed again, he was once again imprisoned. But for the most part, he was able to preach, um, and he died of illness at the age of 60 in 1688. The reason why we share these stories, the reason why we've been going through the history of the Reformation is not only because history helps us understand where we are today theologically, ecclesiastically, and structurally, but because these reformers, these individuals, have left us a legacy of truth-seeking that is so lost today in our pursuit of pleasure and comfort and happiness. And their sacrifice and their example, they're there to enable us, to encourage us, and to challenge us to, to fuel our lives with a desire to seek and to know and to love God. And their example is a challenge to us to live lives that understand that there is a meaning and purpose to this journey that's, you know, not just a thousand steps, but a lifetime. And that, yes, there's going to be times of ups and downs. There's going to be sloughs of despair. If I can just go back to that map... I'll quickly scroll through. And you just look at Pilgrim's, uh, Christian's journey, right? This Pilgrim's progress. Yes, it's convoluted. And yes, the way is straight and narrow, but with so many distractions, so many diversions, so many things that slow us down. And I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you're in that beginning where you're just wondering, what must I do to be saved? I don't know if you're in that place where you still have that burden and you have not yet met Jesus Christ for yourself. Or maybe you have, but now you're trying to go further and you're just struggling up that hill of difficulty. Maybe the valley of doubt. Uh, maybe you're going through fear. Maybe you're facing enemies that are trying to knock you down. But I just want to challenge you. When we look back and remember how much freedom we have today and how much the reformers and the people in the past have done so that we can have now the ability to carry on that journey, not just um, alone, but together as a community, that we can worship here in peace, that we can come together to encourage each other. I hope we remember that this journey that we have as Christians is truly a privileged one, and that the journey that we have as Christians, even though it might be uh, difficult at times, is, is one that, um, as long as we don't give up, is going to lead us to a place that is going to make us the kinds of people who reflect the character of God. There's a verse that I love. Sorry, I'll have to go back to it. I just wanted to show you that map one more time. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We have this great cloud of witnesses, the reformers, all the people in the Bible, all the people in our own lives that we have seen who are witnesses of the fact that God is faithful and that as long as we fix our eyes on him, we can endure and we can go through this life wherever we are. And I think it's so important for us to realize that it's not about whether we're in the sloughs of despair or the palace beautiful. It's not about where we are, but it's about how committed we are to the journey. How committed are we to the journey of never giving up wherever we may be? Of saying, you know what? This is for a time. And next, let's keep on going. And being committed not just to that journey, but to the person who is leading us through that journey and ultimately who is waiting for us at the end of that journey. I pray that our pilgrimage with God would be an inspiration not only to this generation, but that our progress in truth, that as we continue to fight for and, and live out that truth that we are learning on a daily basis, that that would also inspire the generations to come so that we too can leave a legacy for those around us and those to come behind us so that all of us together as we run this race can say at the end, just as Paul did, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. May that be what we can say and that God can say to us, well done, you faithful servant. May that be our prayer today and always. Thank you.